Good morning, everybody. So today we are continuing in our summer worship series that is entitled Stories of God. And the scripture passage that we're going to be looking at today comes from the Old Testament book of Judges. Yes, the Old Testament book of Judges, um, which I know that you all read and you're all experts on, but we're going to just sort of re-engage it a little bit and see what the Lord might say to us all. The scripture passage we're going to look at comes from Judges chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. And I invite you to listen now to God's word to us today. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. And Gideon answered him, But sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our ancestors recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has cast us off and given us into the hand of Midian. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. I hereby commission you. He responded, but sir, how can I deliver Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I, will, and I am the least in my family. The Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike down the Midianites, every one of them. Then he said to him, if now I have found favor with you, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will stay until you return. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, we ask that you would speak to each and every one of us, no matter who we are or how we walk in here, from your living word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, today I am going to invite us through the book of Judges to enter into a time of repentance. Repentance. I can feel your excitement. I can feel your enthusiasm for this. It's going to be great. Some of you right now may be sitting there going, come on, man. I haven't been in church in a long time. I'm just trying this out. I'm trying to get my feet wet again. And you're going to go here today? We're going on the book of Judges of all places. Some of you may be going, come on, this is summer, right? Things get lighter. They get fun. I don't know if you've gotten the memo about this. This is supposed to be awesome. Life's supposed to be good. It's a different schedule. We go to the beach. It's where we post the pictures to make everybody else jealous on Facebook and Instagram of how wonderful my life is and my family is and my vacation is. Why, why are you doing this? Why today? Repentance isn't now. You get six Sundays in Lent to talk about repentance. This is not it. You, you are off on a tangent. You're off on the wrong track. And all of that may be true, but I am not going to apologize for it. We are calling each other into a season and into a time of repentance today. And it's going to be great. Because repentance is the only way that our lives ever change. It's the only way. And here's the deal. And we have to remind ourselves of this from time to time. We don't have church just to have some nice, warm thoughts. Oh, that, that, was, that was, made me think about stuff differently. Not my goal. Not my goal. 
We are not here just to provide some intellectual fodder for your week or to give you a pep talk so that you just sort of feel better as Monday gets closer. We actually believe that Jesus is real, that God is alive, and that God is here and can transform our hearts. Not just give us some nuggets of wisdom for the week, but that God can actually change you and I into people who have more joy, more purpose, more um, of a direction, and more of an understanding of why we exist. And the only way that God transforms our life is for us to engage in the process of repentance. It's the only way. Otherwise, all we're doing is giving you some suggestions. It's chicken soup for the soul on Sundays. And that is not what we're about. That is not what we're here for. And so I am excited because this is a process where our lives might actually look different because we're here. That this might be a moment of change where someone's life is going to look different as you walk out of here than the way you walked in. And that's why we exist. That's why we're here. That's what we're about. We're going to believe that that could be true today. And repentance is how that happened. It's how we get there, okay? So the book of Judges can lead us to repentance. Now, if repentance is a new thing for you, there's kind of two parts to it, okay? There's two parts, and both parts we're going to engage in today. The first part of of a life of repentance is it's understanding where there is sin or brokenness in our life. It's seeing it, okay? We have to identify it. And when we talk about sin, we're not about, you know, you're breaking the rules. What we're saying is, is that sin are choices that don't ultimately bring us life and don't cause us to bring life to those around us. It's a state of brokenness. So where is there sin that exists in our life? Number one is to identify it. And the second part is to turn and move our lives in a new direction. To change the patterns of our life from moving this way, which is false, and turning and moving towards something else. Both of these parts we're going to engage in today through the book of Judges. So the first part is this. Number one, how do we, through the book of Judges, start identifying sin? What is the sin that we can see in this passage and in the book of Judges that would speak to our lives here today in Austin thousands of years later? Well, to understand this, rather than just seeing this one scripture passage, you have to understand what the book of Judges is. And the book of Judges essentially is a book where you see a certain pattern take place and the pattern takes place. And if you think about the pattern, which I'll explain in a second, it sort of works like a circle. It's a circular pattern in the book. This pattern happens and then it happens again and then it happens again and then it happens again and then it happens again. And the pattern is what's going to tell us what is sin, what is brokenness in our own lives or in the world. Okay, and here's the pattern. So you got to know the pattern of the book of Judges. Okay, it starts, if you think about it in a circle, it starts at the top. And the pattern begins with God and God's people walking together, walking closely together in intimacy and in relationship and experiencing wonders that come from that. But what happens is that as the circle starts moving, as the pattern starts moving, the Israelites are in Canaan. They're in the promised land now. And as we talked about last week, there are other tribes. There's other faiths in the lives of some of the other folks, other nations in Canaan. The Midianites, which we read about here. The Amalekites are another one. And they start looking at how these other people are living. And they think, I would like my life to look a little bit more like that. I'd like us to be a little bit more like the Midianites. I'd like us to adopt some of those beliefs. I'd like us to adopt some of those practices. I'd like, you know, maybe the old saying's wrong. Maybe the grass really is greener 
over there. How do we know? It's all about rules and what you can't. So we're going to go and we're not going to leave Yahweh. We're not going to leave God, but we're going to take parts of different faiths and we're going to take parts of different customs and we're going to just incorporate it into ours because that's better, right? It's like, it's like our faith supersized. It's just like we just sort of bring in some different elements of different cultures and different faiths and different beliefs and we sort of kind of combine it all together into this wondrous new package that's going to make everybody more happy. And so they do it, and it sounds great, because when people hear that, they're like, yeah, I buy into that. That sounds awesome. So people buy into it, and what happens is, as the pattern continues and they make these changes, the circle moves down. And as the circle moves down, the people become disappointed by the path they've chosen. What they realize is that the reality is not nearly as good as the promise. They thought it was gonna be great if we just combine all this stuff into one big happy package. But as they kind of get down here, they're like, this isn't really that great. This isn't very satisfying. We're not really very happy. It, we don't have any kind of direction because we can't really say no to anything or anyway. It's just like everybody's kind of there. And there's nothing fulfilling that comes in that. So then at the bottom of the circle, they cry out to God saying, God, come help us. We need you. We need help. We need direction. We need you to show us what to do. And God listens to their cry and then sends judges to them. Now, when you hear judges, you think of a courtroom and you think of a judge who sits there and is like, you're guilty because you've done this wrong and here's your punishment. That's not how they understood the judges. The judges were men and women whom God would raise up and send to the people to lead them back to a relationship with God. The judges were men and women who were sent to lead the people back to the one true God. Okay, and then the pattern would come, become complete and the people were like, this is great and we feel wonderful. And then they would live for a little while and then their children would come up and their grandchildren would come up and they'd be like, man, this stuff's too restrictive. We need like more creativity. We need more freedom. We're gonna kind of like look at our neighbors and start, because we're creative and we're spiritual and not religious and we're gonna do something different that the world's never seen before. And the pattern just starts again and then it comes back and then the next generation does it again and we're doing it straight to today. And we still believe that what we're doing is creative. We still believe that we're being original when we follow this pattern. It's as old as time. And it's not nearly as satisfying in reality as the promise of what it's going to be. So God sends the judges. Okay, so... One of the cool things in this is that God never gets tired of answering his people. God never gets tired of you and I. When we have messed up over and over and over again, the good news is God never washes his hands of us and goes away. And that's good. But the question for repentance is, if this pattern's real, what would it mean rather than kind of getting to this point and crying out for God and seeing God come back? What if we actually stopped the pattern? <laughs> like, what would it mean if we were like, hey, I got an idea, rather than just repeating what always happens, what if we stopped the pattern and repented and tried something, you know, different? Something that actually would be original. Something that would be creative. What would that look like? That's what I want us to ask today. So here's the question. What, what is going on for the Hebrews in this time that's causing them to wander? And does that have anything to say to us today? And the answer, I believe, is yes. The answer is yes. Because the idea of looking at the other side of the fence and thinking the grass is greener is not something that we as a people have matured out of yet. And all of us have this in different ways. There's lots of terms for it. There's lots of words for it. But what an economist would call this behavior is consumerism. 
That's what an economist would call this. Consumerism, individual consumerism defined is saying that there is a, all, an ever increasing desire for more goods and services. That's how, that's how you define consumerism as an economist. An ever increasing desire for more goods and services, for more stuff, for more experiences, for more restaurants, for more vacations, for more bungee jumping, for more of whatever it is that I love to do. Whatever that thing is, if I could just have more of it, then my life would ultimately be better. Right? It, it, it was personified when the uh, latest iPhone came out. And this might describe some of you, and we're just using an example. I'm not speaking about any of you. Um, but it's just an example of it, right? We all do this. Uh, I saw an interview with a guy, one of those guys that was camping out for hours before the Apple store opened with the new iPhone. And the person like came to him and said, uh, on the, the TV interview, it's like, do you not have a phone or anything? Like, no, 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 I had you know, the last iPhone before this one. But he goes, but I just knew I wouldn't be at peace until I got the newest iPhone. I'm sure he's at peace now. I'm sure his life is tranquil now, right? It's like, it was only the newest iPhone that was missing. But here's the thing, I'm not even that into phones and I'm not into technology and, and by that I mean I'm really not that into it. But recently I had someone who was talking about different apps on your phone and they asked to see my phone and they're like, oh, they looked at it like, yeah, that's one of the older models. And there was this thing in me where I was like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Like I really felt you like, oh, I need like the new iPhone. Why, does mine not work? No, it works fine. But I don't wanna be that guy that everyone's like, yeah, you have the old model, right? Because I don't know why, but I just don't wanna be that guy. And so I gotta go like find the thing. And, and again, this isn't even my thing, right? I don't care that much about it. It's that, it's the, the idea of if I just had a little bit more, then things would be better. This is the idea. What economists understand by consumerism is that it is an ever-expanding desire for more. What economists know and what drives global markets is that human beings as a whole are never going to pull back and go, you know what, we're good. We got enough. We don't need any more stuff. We don't need any more things now because we're just great. Exactly how things are. That's never going to happen. It's an ever-expanding idea of what more I need. And that consumerism, it lies at the heart of what is driving the Hebrews. I want what the Midianites have. Now, when you say that out loud, it's like, that sounds kind of dumb. That sounds sort of immature, and it is, but it's how we act. Advertisers know this, right? Advertisers know, and they build advertising campaigns around reminding you of what's not perfect about your life, and then in very subtle ways going, if your life had this, Look how much better it would be. It sounds dumb when you say it, but there's a reason that companies spend millions and millions of dollars a year on advertising, because it works. Because we do it, right? Because when my family is arguing and there's tension and everything else, is that I can see an ad for Disney World, the happiest place on earth. And I can go there and I see the ad of the family and nobody's on their phones and you're smiling and you're laughing because no one ever argues about what bus or shuttle you're supposed to get on to get to the park at the right time. It's just kind of where you go. And you're like, man, that's where we need. Now, Disney doesn't look and say, come to Disney World and it will be this way because they would know that no one would do it. They just put the breadcrumbs out there and we just follow right along. That's how we live. This governs so much of our behavior. This subtle understanding that if I just had more. So here's a question. If that governs so much of our behavior, if global markets can exist because they know that human beings act this way, does it deliver on the promise that if you get more, things are better? 
Like that's a, that's a, it seems like a valid question, right? If it's governing our behavior, an ever-expanding desire for more, does it, does it deliver? And here's the deal. If we ask that question, we here right now are the world's leading experts on whether it works. Because there has never been a nation in history that has consumed more than the United States of America. We are the global experts at any time in history, and there's very few things you can say that about, but of any nation that has ever existed in the history of the world, you and I are the experts. We consume more stuff, more food, more restaurants, more experiences, more things, more clothes, more shoes, more than any other nation has ever done in the history of humanity. We are the global experts on whether this works. And by whether it works is, this is what I mean, statistically. We make up currently today 5% of the global population. And we currently consume about 25% of the global resources in a given year. The second nation that consumes net isn't even in the rear view mirror. We are so far in front of everybody else. And by this thinking, we should be the happiest nation that has ever existed in the history of the world because we have more. These guys were worried about the Midianites. We passed the Midianites like hundreds of years ago. We are so far beyond what the book of Judges is talking about. We should be the most content, satisfied people ever, right? So are we? Most recent study that asked different nations to rank their sense of satisfaction, contentment, and happiness, we currently rank 17th on the list of nations of who's happiest, and that's just today. And in case you're wondering, we're moving down. A decade before that, we were 11th. So we're now consuming more than any time in history, and given the, t the change in that time, we are becoming more and more relatively unhappy. But we keep buying into it, literally buying into it. We keep knowing that it's just around the next corner. Dad, when are we gonna get there? It's just around the next corner, right? We're almost there. It's gonna click in just a minute and all of a sudden, things will be great. Or we could realize that this is a false narrative that has driven generations of people for as long as people have been around. We could see the falsehood of that narrative and move in a new direction. That's number two. Number one is to identify, and number two is to change. So what would it mean to repent? What would it mean to be a people who turn their lives and their patterns and their behaviors to move in a new direction? Well, I would submit to you today that if there was a word or a phrase that we use here at Covenant to best describe what repentance would look like in this situation in which we find ourselves, the phrase that we use that best describes repentance is extravagant generosity. Extravagant generosity. The idea that what we have been given is primarily to be given away, to be given to others of our time, of our resources, of our finances, that it's in looking at what we've been giving and start by asking the question, what can I do to serve in this? Whose life can I impact in this? What would it mean to give away rather than to just consume? 
And to wonder about as I get, how much more can I get? And to wonder what the next stages of that are. The people of God have always understood that. That's why in the book of Acts, the first Christians said that they devoted themselves to the practice of prayer, to Bible study, to community, but to extravagant generosity. They recognize this pattern that is around in every culture that we have to move away from. Because how we're generous with our stuff says just as much about our spirituality as whether we pray or not. But, it's, it, it, but most of us have divorced those two things because it's more convenient. But no, we are called to understand that God has blessed us in order to be a blessing to others. And when we change that pattern and move towards generosity, the fact is, is that I've never heard anyone complain in response to that. Like I've never heard anybody who sit there and says they look back on their time if they volunteered tutoring students and go, you know, I wish I just hadn't done that. I wish I had just taken more time for me. I just, I really wish I, I've never heard anyone say that. I've never heard anybody say who gave of their finances and gave to where there was need. I've never heard anybody who gave to a college scholarship program for children who, who are high school graduates and couldn't afford it, who gave and made that possibility, who said, I wish I just really bought a new car. I wish I'd done that. No one says that. Who does it? The hard part is moving to generosity, but when we do it, you actually see people who become more content. You see people who spend their vacation going on mission trips, which seems so weird because you're not just going and relaxing somewhere, who come back going, that was the most amazing experience. Because I base what I had not about how much do I get, but what can I go give? It changes the way we start living. It's how God's economy works. So what would it mean for you? What's those places where you consistently are thinking about the acquisition of more and start moving towards being a contributor rather than just being a consumer? What would it mean to change the patterns of your life? And would that make a real difference? What would it change? You might feel like Gideon right now going, listen, who am I? I can change some patterns, but I'm not going to change the world. That's Gideon, right? Who am I? I'm from the weakest tribe. I'm like the youngest one in my family. Who am I to go change the world? And God's going, you can do it. Just take a step out in faith and you can change the world around you. But Gideon is a judge. What you're going to have to do is you're going to have to realize your life is about the service of your nation. You have to realize that your life is about serving the needs of your people. And that's going to be your primary goal. What does it mean to become extravagantly generous with all that God's given you? You may have heard the story recently of Travis Rudolph. Travis Rudolph is a football player. He plays, currently he signed a contract in the NFL for the New York Giants. Last year, he played for Florida State University in Tallahassee, northern Florida. And if you play for Florida State, you play for one of the top college football programs in the nation most every year. And Travis Rudolph was a starting wide receiver on Florida State's team last year, okay? He was going into his junior year at Florida State. The year before that, as a sophomore, he'd been the leading receiver at Florida State. He had uh, um, you know, been one of the top players on the team. And so going into last year, going into his junior year, he was um, on all ACC teams and he was on some All-America teams. And what Florida State does is they take their best players and they will at times send them out into the community. They take their star players, the, kind of the celebrities who are huge celebrities in Tallahassee, and they send them out in the community, often to schools. And one of the things that these players will do when they go into schools is they will usually go in for the lunch hour and they will eat in the cafeteria in local high schools and junior high schools in Tallahassee, sort of as an ambassador of the program. 
Well, as one of the star players, Travis Rudolph was almost always in that group that went out. And Travis Rudolph talked about how the players that got picked over and over again to go into these schools, that they would sort of roll their eyes at it, right? It was like, oh man, I gotta go eat cafeteria food again. Like I felt like those days were over. I gotta go into this room and there's gonna be all this like commotion and it's in the middle of my classes and I got working out to do and I got studies to do. But he said in the end we would go do it and the guys who went kind of loved it. He's like, you kind of love walking into a cafeteria where there's 700 middle school students and when you walk in, everybody, I've never experienced this before, but I could imagine it's a good thing. He's like, everybody starts cheering for you. Everybody's phones come out. They want pictures with you. I mean, you are a celebrity. He goes, it's kind of cool in that moment to to be in that environment. So we kind of roll our eyes about it, but in the end, we love it. Travis Rudolph is a young man of faith. Travis Rudolph in these times of going into school said that as he was walking in, he began asking a different set of questions than just where am I going to sit and how many photos do I have to take and who's going to cheer the loudest. He said, I started just transitioning a little bit from walking into the school, thinking about who was going to give me attention. And I started walking in and asking the question, Lord, let me see if there's someone that I could serve here. Let me see today as I walk in here, if there's someone's life that I might be able to impact. It's an incredible and subtle shift, but it's so important rather than going and going, where am I gonna get attention? To Lord, help my radar to be up of where there's need and help me to be the one to meet it. Change the pattern of behavior of how he walked into the cafeteria whenever he'd go. And this one day in this one middle school, as he walked in, he had all his teammates were there and the people and the kids started cheering and all the cameras came out and folks were beckoning to come eat and they went and got some food. They got some pizza on this day. And as his teammates were going over the tables where folks were full and everybody was, Travis Rudolph looked and in the back corner of the cafeteria was one young boy who was eating at a table all by himself. The boy's name is Bo Paskey. Bo was a sixth grader in this school who was eating alone. Bo has autism. And he has been able to start elementary school with people his age. And yet, as he had moved into middle school, he had begun socially experiencing more and more isolation to the point that he was eating in the cafeteria at a table all by himself. There's a photo that was taken this day in the school. You can see in the back of all the kids eating together and this All-America wide receiver that sat down with Bo at this table. And the two of them, he said, had a great conversation. Because one 20-year-old asked the question of, Lord, how could I serve here rather than just receive? He saw the room differently than anyone else. Can it change the world? I'd submit to you it can. But rather than me telling you that, or you even imagining that, I want to read to you Bo's mother's words when she received this photo of Travis and Bo eating lunch together. She posted the picture on her Facebook page, and this is what she wrote. Her name is Leah Paskey. Let's just keep this photo up. Now that I have a child starting middle school, I have feelings of anxiety for him. And they can be overwhelming if I let them. Sometimes I'm grateful for his autism. And that may sound like a terrible thing to say, but in some ways, I think, I hope, it shields him. He doesn't seem to notice when people stare at him when he flaps his hands. 
He doesn't seem to notice that he doesn't get invited to birthday parties anymore. And he doesn't seem to mind if he eats lunch alone. It's one of my daily questions for him. Was there a time today that you felt sad? Why did you eat lunch? Who did you eat lunch with today? Sometimes the answer is a classmate, but most days it's nobody. And those are the days I feel sad for him, but he doesn't seem to mind. He is a super sweet child who always has a smile and hug for everyone he meets. A friend of mine sent me this beautiful picture today. And when I saw it with the caption, quote, Travis Rudolph is eating lunch with your son, I replied, who is Travis Rudolph? <laughs> he said, FSU football player. And then I had tears streaming down my face. Travis Rudolph, an All-America wide receiver at Florida State and several other FSU players visited my son's school today. I'm not sure what exactly made this incredibly kind man share a lunch table with my son, but I'm happy to say that it will not soon be forgotten. This is one day I didn't have to worry if my sweet boy ate lunch alone because he sat across from someone who is a hero in many eyes. Travis Rudolph, thank you so much. You made this mama exceedingly happy and have made us fans for life. Because one 20-year-old kid walked into a room with a different set of questions than anyone else. The world changes. Today, I invite you to repent. To repent of whatever it looks like in your life, in our culture, in our world that makes us think that the more and more stuff and things and experiences we have, the better off and more content we will be. I invite you to see the falsehood of that narrative that drives global markets and to live in a different way to live asking what you can give than what you can receive, to live asking how you can be extravagantly generous with the world around you. And as we repent, we will find life and it will flow from us to the world. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. We ask this day that you would meet us in this place and teach us about a different way of living. May we see how the Israelites in Canaan were really no different than how we live today. And may we see the patterns of our life that buy into the desire for more. May we see this false narrative and live into an alternative narrative, a new narrative, a true narrative of generosity of extravagance, of giving. We pray that you would lead and guide us in this journey together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.